0: Beginning, the beginning, the beginning, the beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. My name is Sean Ram, alongside Joshua Black, as always. We have a special guest with us today. His name is Justin Wren. So, just a little background. I'm a mixed martial arts fan. If you're not aware of mixed martial arts, it's an amazing sports. combines lots of different types of sports on their own in general. So, you have jiu-jitsu, wrestling, uh, taekwondo, what have you. Anything in mixed martial arts. And these competitors, you know, they're incredible. They, they go into the cage and fight these other people, you know, and many different motivations. So this, this person, Justin Wren, you know, amazing wrestling career. Let me walk you through his bio a little bit. Justin Wren has spent much of his life fighting from a stellar early wrestling career as national champion to becoming a star UFC fighter. In his book, Fight for the Forgotten, Ren shares how God shifted his focus from fighting against opponents in the cage to fighting for the most bullied people in the world, the Boutique pygmies in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Justin is known for his successful mixed martial arts career, like I spoke about in the UFC. Early in his career, he appeared on the Spike reality show The Ultimate Fighter, cementing his reputation as a dominating force in the heavyweight division. His current record of 14-2 remains an impressive testament to his skill. But many are surprised to find this 6 foot 3 inch, 265 pound fighter has an even bigger heart. After discovering his faith following a 6 year struggle with addiction and depression in his early career, Ren stepped away from MMA to find God's purpose for his life. He soon felt called to serve the Mimbuti pygmy people deep in the jungles of the Congo. While Ren knew they were an incredibly impoverished people group, he did not know the depths of their pain, Until he spent time living among them and shared in their suffering. They are enslaved by rival people groups, are even cannibalized, and refer to themselves as the Forgotten People. A turning point in Ren's life was holding a young boy, Andy Bo, as he died of a water related parasite after being refused care by local doctors. So when we heard about Justin, you know, we wanted to bring him on the podcast, not only because I'm a fan of mixed martial arts, but because, you know, his story is so compelling and it's really speaks to what. the human soul can do what we can accomplish as people. You know, we can help each other out in amazing, drastic ways. Our podcast, uh, Grief Dreams Podcast, we talk about grief, we talk about loss, we talk about wanting to build communities and having people share loss stories. That brings us together, and that's something we've all found. And you know, through Josh's research near completion of his PhD in this amazing topic, psychology with grief, dream, specialization, you know, that provides us the background where we can have these conversations. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's about bringing people together. So without further ado, we have Justin Wren. Justin, welcome.
1: Hey, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate you guys having me. Truly, I do. And I think you guys, uh, what you guys talk about here is so important. You know, a lot of people lean away uh, from talking about grief and, and other things that are tough. But, uh, no, this is awesome I, I I love what you
2: guys are doing. It's so true right in our culture, and hopefully we get to touch on that a little bit with you how maybe the culture is a bit differently over there than it is here, and what you've learned personally in your life that gives you that motivation because I think when we talk about our loss and the pain that we go through, I think we just find we're just more we have more gratitude and more love yeah. for other people and I think that's what this is really about, It's just connecting people but opening their hearts to a new level that they didn't know existed.
1: Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. It gives you a much deeper appreciation of life, uh, for life, and a deeper sense of what life's about and how precious it is and uh, how we only get one life to live and so let's make the best of it the, the, the most use. And, man, I don't know. I, I think the first 23 years of my life, uh, I, I, we can get into that, but I, I feel like it was probably focus on more of the shallow stuff and like what you guys are talking about when you talk about loss grief whenever you talk about the tough stuff and the great stuff uh you you go beneath the topsoil you you go deep with people and um and i think we have to do that we have to dig deep we have to go deep in relationships and life otherwise it's just surface level stuff and i don't know you're just scratching the surface instead of uh getting to the good stuff
0: Walk us through, before you took this journey, walk us through your journey and your journey before you went to the Congo.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know how far back to go, but basically growing up, I I had good parents. Obviously, they struggled too, had tough stuff going on in their life, marriage, different things, but but I had parents that loved me. But at third grade, I shifted schools and first day of school, I don't know why, but just became a target of the notorious bully um, in the school. And he was in the same class, third grade, already a bully. Third grade, um, I was like, what really? But like, yeah, he was, and uh, even had his own like crew. I remember his Michael Phillips and Justin. I shouldn't have used the last name. Oh, but Michael <laughs> Justin and Kay, You know, like oh, sure. um, yeah, and uh, and and they had their I don't know little gang or whatever. But um, they jumped me on the playground, third grade, and I, I don't know if I've ever shared this publicly, but uh, I think it's in the book, maybe, but not in the interview process, but it's, uh, yeah, from that day, kind of life started to shift. I became a target and, uh, a focus. Um, I don't know if I just looked like the weak link or what. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't a tiny guy. I've always been kind of heavy set and uh, even fat or chubby, you know, like, uh, I, but just growing up with those kids around me, they're always grabbing my love handles and twisting my nipples and, uh, and pointing me out in front of the whole school, you know, yeah. and, uh, in front of the girls, and, and yeah, so it was just tough going through seventh, eighth grade. The bullying came to a peak where a girl went to the homecoming game with me, and during halftime, the whole school turned around, watched Justin climb up the the bleachers, and um, he put his arm out, and she put her arm around his. And uh, anyway, she was wearing something that we wear in in the states, or at least Texas, called homecoming mom. And uh, it has your your date and your name on it and the year. And he grabbed that little streamer, little banner, and said, "Hey, you didn't think she would actually come with you, did you? Thanks for buying this for her." And it said Justin and Jessica on it. Wow. um, Anyways, his name was Justin. So my name's Justin. So he just, you know, let me buy it for basically the whole school. Last as they walked down the bleachers together, and I ran out of there, you know, crying. Um, Whoa. And yeah, so that was the kind of uh, peak of it. And then the next year was even worse. Um, I don't know if I should get in that story or not, but, uh, basically like, that was the, the worst story. And, um, I don't know, man, it was just, uh, just tough beginnings. Um, I, I didn't want to let my parents in on how bad the bullying was, you know, so I kept it to myself and I don't know, just I got struck with a deep, dark depression at 13 years old. and um, and was clinically diagnosed with depression, and so it was. I don't know. Uh, it was it was tough beginnings. I, I'll let you guys kind of guide where we go from there. Yeah,
0: that's you know that I've heard of things like that. I mean, I've had cases of that, but obviously not to that level. And anything at that age is gonna impact you down the road. It's stuff you're gonna have to eventually resolve through. And that's that's mean, man. Like that's the worst of the worst. Like. <laughs>
2: yeah i was bullied i can understand uh maybe not well uh not maybe as bad as as you went through but yeah in my elementary school years i was bullied pretty pretty bad and it was was more because i had long hair my dad you know he came from a christian home so like he thought it was like samson and so like you grow your hair long and you're cool right god likes you more (laughs) so but anyways god likes you but no one else does so (laughs) 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 so at the end of it um like between yeah grade one to grade eight it was you know it was was pretty difficult and it's like once i cut the hair the hair off and moved to a different school like things really changed. but it was those those times when you're building your, you know, your self-worth and how you see yourself and, and it gets mm-hmm. shattered and you think that, you know, you're not good enough, you know, that there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, that's, you know, it feels, fuels the depression because now the people that, you know, like in your community don't even want to talk to you and they're, they're bullying you to make fun of you. And this actually is really interesting because I was wondering, I was talking to Sean before, I'm like, why did he at all things you know go to the congo and pick these people and in the bio it says like these people were bullied and i think there's probably a big connection to your life's journey and to why you care about them so much
1: yeah wow well, you i think i think you're onto something there for sure um or you just nailed it because i like what you said that the, especially you said grade one through eight for you third through eight for me um Actually, thirds or ten, but uh, yeah, I uh, you know sat at one table by myself. I uh, was pelted in the back of the head with chocolate milk, spitwads, and food, and other things, and told I wasn't you know. Well, for for that second story, I won't get too deep into it, but basically, my middle school crush crushed me. Uh, whenever I was invited to her birthday party, a costume contest, so I found out she loved Transformers, and I knew she loved Dr Pepper, so being a country kid, um, having some duct tape. I, uh, bought the Dr. Pepper cases and made myself, I don't know, from head to toe into a Dr. Pepper transformer. Oh man. Um, <laughs> and went, yeah. hope you have a picture party. of that. <laughs> I wish, I wish I did. I think I was so ashamed. Uh, I, I don't have anything, but, um, I know some other kids do. I, uh, I went to the party, got there, Her grandmother opened the door, walked to the backyard, she was like, She's gonna love this and get to the backyard and when the door opens, um greeted by all my peers, all my classmates, um, all the popular kids and I uh, wasn't one of those. And uh when the door opened, uh was blasted with a couple of flashes of light. There was some cameras, saw some fingers pointing as my eyes began to focus or whatever and uh heard laughter and um it was uh basically well, Jennifer and her party and uh, her Jennifer say, I can't believe you thought you were good enough to come to my party. Another kid said, you're worthless. Use that exact words. And then Justin, the notorious bully said, uh, you should just kill yourself. And so right there, you know, felt worthless, thought I should kill myself, began that battle of not just depression, but suicidal thoughts for about 10 years. And, yeah, man. It was it was really tough. Felt all alone. Felt like my identity felt like, uh, I don't know, that was worthless. And like what you said with the Congo, um, yeah, when I met the Pygmies, they said, everyone else calls the forest people, but we call ourselves the forgotten. Mm-hmm. And that was their identity, was forgotten. And they said that they felt worthless in the eyes of everyone else. Um, and that there were the least of these, like everyone else has this and uh, uh, not just what they have, but um, how they are treated uh, in comparison to everyone else, how they look down upon. Um, and then, like in that bio said, whenever Andy Bowes, um, which I never heard that bio, so wherever he got it uh, went deep. Um, I don't know what to sent I do guys or what, but uh, it uh, covered a lot. But, um, yeah, when Andy Bo was denied hospital treatment, whenever uh, his mother brought him to the hospital the first time, and they said, you're too dirty to come in here. I mean, it, 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 she was met at the door by the nurse, said, you're too dirty to come inside here. Whenever they, the second time, came up with the money, it was a dollar to give them the pills. It was $3 to give them the one-shot cure. And they were denied hospital treatment, saying, we won't waste our medicine on a pygmy animal. I mean, I don't know how you get more hated than that when you have the money to pay, but you're still rejected. Um, the first time was neglect, second time was rejection. And um, whenever I dug his grave uh, and bought the casket to bury him in, uh, it was $35 uh, to to put him in that casket. And it's like, man, it would have been $3 to save his life, or a dollar if he got the pills in time. So it just it wrecked me, man. It changed me, and I had this deep connection, and I think it is from my past, although if we compare what I had, you know kids just saying mean things and i mean there's no real way to compare it and the, the two cultural differences you know but uh but yeah i just had such a heart for them. i think from the way that i grew up and, and i love them. i deeply love them. they uh they accepted me and his family with open arms and i have my legitimate family there you know that I was adopted into and then i have you know just the tribe sees me as the big pygmy, and uh yeah so i just i love them, and uh and they've gotten me through tough times, and I feel like I've stood beside them during tough times as well and we stood up for each other. And so it's it's been, I don't know, it's 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 kind of crazy how it's all happened, but it's been the most passion, uh, passionate thing I've been involved in and with the most purpose, and it's just transformed my life. And you know, I've seen stuff happen there that's transformed communities, which has been a really incredible thing to be part of.
0: Yeah, and, and following your story, you get to hear, and after listening to you on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, uh, if you guys haven't heard, he said, Justin has five interviews now that you can look up online, you know, and hear them, and hear more in-depth detail about a lot of other stories. Once you hear what type of uh, amazing things are happening over there, it just opens up your, it just warms your heart. And, you know, it made me think that, you know, maybe those experiences you went through, you know, in middle school, high school, you know, elementary, essentially. That might have helped you open up your heart to this experience now with your pygmy family and what's going on with them and them being neglected and abused and just treated like non-humans. Who knows? Who knows? But tell us about how your journey started to the Congo and the work that you and your team have done uh, with the pygmy family. Yeah. I
1: mean, let's see. When it all starts to kind of crazy um but uh i had been fighting i got into fighting because of the bullying i thought those fighters probably don't get bullied um so started fighting uh love like how you introduced it for me it's like a human chess match um i don't know fighting didn't fulfill me like i had thought it would it, it did for a little while but uh i got paid to do what i love for a living so it it makes sense that it would, uh, fulfill me, but it kind of didn't. Um, you know, when my childhood dreams came true and, uh, had that life of life that I, that I picked out, you know, if I could only do this, if I could only be that for some reason I, I still became a depressed drunk drug addict and really confused me. And for me, uh, I mean, faith is, my faith is kind of the foundation of all this, but it, uh, I say God came in and loved the hell out of me um, and uh, and gave me a sense of, I don't know, that I wanted to live for something greater than myself. And I wanted to love people and fight for them. I didn't know where to do that or how to do that, but I started getting involved at the local children's hospital, uh, the youth group, the uh, homeless shelter, rescue mission. And, um, and then 11 months into my sobriety and into my faith, Uh, I was basically praying and said, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And it sounds, still, every time I explain it, I I preface it saying it sounds crazy, because it does. Um, It seemed crazy to me. Uh, I've experimented with a lot of different psychedelics and have had my, you know, hallucinations and different stuff like that. But um, uh, this is definitely, I had a vision and I didn't try to conjure it up. I didn't think I was going to have a vision. I wasn't. I'm I'm an athlete, right? So I've lived at the Olympic Training Center for wrestling after being national champ and had sports psychologists try to walk me through visualization drills. And and I've seen hundreds of matches in my mind uh, before I go out there and do it. My last fight that I won, um, I basically visualized it down almost to the minute, like everything that was going to happen. I saw it before I went out there and did it. Um, So I believe in the power of visualization, but this was not um, something I... I was trying to do or visualize it just happened, and uh, I had this movie in my mind, a vision that was the most most vivid and real thing i've ever experienced that wa- that wasn't happening it's so weird to so weird and hard to explain, um, except for it was like it happened before it happened and um, I was in a in the forest, I was walking down this footpath i was moving the vines out of the way, the thickets, and um, I start hearing the singing, uh, dr- or sorry, first I heard the drumming, and it was a very distinct pattern. Get closer and I hear the singing that's um, even more unique. It almost sounds like this strange yodeling, like tribal yodeling. I know that sounds weird, or just so different than anything I've ever heard before in my life. And I was intrigued, and I was on this strange journey in this strange place i have no idea where i'm at so there's all this curiosity and wonder of like what am i doing where am i at um and i get in to this village in this clearing and i see these people and instantly like my i don't know my my emotions or my heart has a sense of deep compassion for these people because i see their ribs poking out and i saw this one man specifically that was coughing coughing and Uh, I knew that he was sick and that he was hungry and that he was thirsty, that he didn't have any clean water and that they were, yeah, poor. And I just had a sense that they were hated by the people groups around them, that they were oppressed. And I knew that I knew that they were slaves, that they actually faced modern day slavery. And man, uh, the thing that lit me up most in the vision and impacted me afterwards too is that they felt forgotten, that that was their identity. and. I came out of that vision crying. I left a puddle of tears where I was. I was on my hands and knees by the time like this vision was over. Uh wow. kind of just on my face and uh and crying, just weeping. I've never cried like that in my life. Uh before or after, since then, Andy Bo, I make like, I've I've cried hard tears, but this was like this was sobbing. This was uncontrollable and it, it made me feel like I was like I was crazy. Like, I had some sort of mental break or something, and I didn't know what happened. I didn't know who they were, but I wrote down "forgotten" on the top of a piece of paper. Underneath it, it was like hungry, sick, poor, thirsty, uh, oppressed, and slaves. And um, three days later, I tell a guy. Uh, seemed like a little bit of a wild man. He was like a. He taught survival training, and I was actually going through it and um just because i was with a group that wanted to go through it and uh after i went through it i found out he's done a lot of work in africa and different things and his name's caleb and i tell him about the vision i'm like this is the last day i'm going to see this guy it just seems too serendipitous that i that i missed the opportunity to tell him and i had the sense that like if i didn't i would always wonder what if what if i told him would he have known or and the same thing, like whenever I was going to Congo, I could have said no, but I was like, you know, I'll have this sense of what, what would have happened if I went or, you know, um, or I'd always have questions. So, but when I told Caleb and all of a sudden, sorry, I'm going all over the place, but I tell Caleb I and he instantly like gets excited for me. I'm like, what? And he stops me and says, I know who they are. I'm like, what? And he goes, those are the pygmies. <laughs> I'm like, Who? He said, yeah, they're in the Congo, deep in the Congo rainforest. I'm like, where, where wow. is this? You know, I didn't, I didn't know Congo was in Africa. I, I knew it was a country, but I didn't know where. And, um, and anyways, uh, he's like, yeah, it's the craziest thing. for telling me the story because my wife was just talking to me yesterday about canceling my trip. I'm like what trip? He goes, I'm going in three and a half weeks. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> But the day before all three guys that he was going with, he was leading a team there kind of what he called a scout trip to just go and meet them and see their suffering and see if there's any way uh, that we could help them. And so, uh, he said that the rebels took over the airport. uh, They were killing and raping and even eating, uh, the pygmies who he was going to meet. And he had gone the year before and he was going back the second trip. And, uh, I'm just like, this is crazy. He goes, yeah, tell me about it. He's like, I was talking to my wife. And uh, basically, I I told her, give me a couple days and see if I'm still supposed to go or not. (laughs) And he said, "Uh, if you had a vision, if you decide to go, I'll go. And I was like, wow. And I didn't know what to say because he told me about how dangerous it was. And I've never been anywhere like that. Anyways, I'm making the story way too long. But but, uh, yeah, I I just don't know how to explain the vision in a (laughs) bite-sized bit. Right? How do (laughs) I make that a minute or two?
2: No, uh, and I I appreciate you going into depth because there's a lot of moments in our lives that impact us, and a lot of them can be sort of the dreams we have of loved ones and dreams in general. And you had a vision which is very similar. Just you're awake when you're having it, and people need to know that it exists and that it can it changes you. Like these things, you can't really explain it, but once you have it it changes the way you see yourself and the world that you live in.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, man. Um, even, and I know I'm fast forwarding a bit, but even me coming back to fighting, I had, I had not fought for five years and two months. I would just gone and stayed in the Congo, lived in the Congo. Well, the last six years went back and forth a bunch and lived there for a year at a time. And so I'm coming up on probably two years of being there, um, over the last six years. And, uh, and man, what got me to come back to fighting was uh, three very vivid dreams, and these are like—I'm telling you guys—four. It's only happened four times, which four times is a lot. But still, like out of all the days I've lived, where these 30 years, there's been four moments in my life, three dreams, and one vision that have changed the trajectory, the direction of my life. And, did uh, did
0: we pick the right guest? <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh goodness, wow. yeah, and. And actually, sorry, my, my wife's best friend had the first dream, and she had a dream of me coming back to fighting. And I met her after I stopped fighting, the best friend. I met my wife after I stopped fighting, um, and her friend who knew nothing about fighting, never been to a fight, had a dream about me fighting again. My wife's in the Congo with me, and she had li- been there for about three months, and she receives a text, you know, has, has Justin been thinking about coming back to fighting. And it had nothing about the dream in it. And uh and she's like, um, you know, he he said he had a dream about it and she asked me, I'm like, Yeah, I've had a dream, but you know, it's kinda crazy. Who comes back after five years off and had this life now and this is my fight now and I'm fighting for them and that's the fight that I'm fighting now. Uh but then in the rainforest, you know, with the pygmies, I have a dream again about me fighting again and the third dream was uh was me stepping back in the cage and I think a lot of fighters might. I don't know about a lot, but I've heard some other fighters talk about this. And one of the moments I love the most is hearing the cage lock behind me. It's like uh, you know, some people can get scared. It's like, hey, there's no way out kind of thing until the fight's over. But for me, when it locks, it's like it's game time. Like this is what I'm. You know, I'm. This is why I trained this hard for this moment. You know, it's time to go out there and fight and perform and do what I love. And so uh, in the third dream, I got in. And while I'm stepping into the cage, I slap a tattoo on my arm. And the tattoo is a fight for the forgotten tattoo. And I step in, the cage locks, and all of a sudden, I just kind of soak up the atmosphere, kind of living in the moment. And I kind of smile and nod. It's like, a, And I had this sense that like I'm home, um, or this is what I'm supposed to do. But that was in the Congo before I ever came back to fighting. I had five years off in the rainforest, and I'm sleeping on the dirt under a twig and leaf hut end up having dreams about me fighting again, come back, we get married and I start training for a new fight. So yeah, dreams have have definitely, if, if they're not just weird or, you know, abstract, if there's something like that I can dig into and that it seems like this might actually be something, uh, good. And I don't know how to explain it, but if it, if it has this deep meaning to it, I'm going to, I'm going to go with it and explore it mm-hmm. and, and pursue it.
2: No, that's amazing. I've had certain experiences too, which um, like through dreams that have led me different places. And people would call me crazy to to do them, but you do them, and the results are just miraculous. And I think I listen to your story, and it reminds me of you know that uh, that movie Cinderella Man. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. Saw it, I saw. I saw a long time ago.
2: It was like this fighter, right? Like this boxer. He he was good, but you know he didn't. You know he wasn't that great. And then there was left the fan. The, the war happened, and he broke his arm, and he had to sort of quit. And then he became impoverished and very depressed. But anyways, he came back, and when he came back, he had a new motivation for fighting because now he was fighting for his family, for milk and and bread. And he ended up winning the the belt because of it. And so I think, like I I look at you and I hear your story, and I think there's got to be something inside you that have changed. Like if you have that vision, you know, and you're going back to fighting with this purpose, there's gotta be, is there something like different when you, when you step in the ring or when you train that wasn't there prior?
1: Yeah, without a doubt. There's a, there's a fire in my bones, bro. I never said it that way, but yeah, there's, there's a fire in my eyes. There's a, a fire in my soul my heart, you know, that's just driving me and I didn't have that before. I mean, I love to fight and I love to compete and I, thought I was passionate about it before <laughs> um but then I got pulled away by the addictions and depression and and I don't know it was about me right and I was fighting for myself and I think that that's not sustainable if you're if we're comparing it to that Cinderella man or or maybe it is but I think the more dangerous opponent is fighting for so much more than himself yeah. and um yeah.
0: Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say people, you know, need to understand you're five years away, stepping away from professional fighting, you know, look at any other professional sports league. That's rare, you know, for someone to be so, you know, spend so much time away from their sport, come back, excel. You've won your last two fights. Is that right? Last two fights you've won.
1: Yeah, actually I've won. Yeah. I, I left on a three fight win streak, right. uh, which really surprised people. And I was having calls for the first two years. I left because they're like, you're on a winning streak. Why'd you leave? I'm like, hey, I found a better fight. And, uh, <laughs> and or I just wouldn't respond, you know. And uh, and then I come back and now I'm, I'm on another three fight win streak. So I guess six fights. Incredible. But, um, the five years in between there.
0: Yeah, and you looked at, uh, like, just, I mean, highlight after highlight in the last fight. Um, I remember the belly yeah. to belly suplex. Awesome. <laughs> you know. Thanks. The fire came from something it came from having these dreams which you know props to you for listening to them because a lot of people might not listen to those dreams but you said listen i'm gonna go with this i still can't believe this you know man from texas has vision about being in congo meets other man who happens to be going to (laughs) congo That forgotten, you know, you had that clue in the dream and then it manifests itself. You go over there, you spend all these years doing incredible things, impacting this culture, this tribe in ways that we can't imagine. And all through taking the time to hear what's in your heart, what's in your dreams. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, man, I think, uh, I think there's, you know, a lot of people uh, or I mean, a lot of people have different personality traits or people that are really intellectual or there's people that are just, I don't know if it's, if this is science or not, but I know there's like knowers who just know things and steers and feelers and hearers. And man, I'm, I'm definitely a, a feeler. And I don't know there, I mean, I guess there's times that I see things or times that I hear things, but whenever I get a clue, I try to latch onto it and follow it. And, it's like whenever kind of my heart spikes or jumps and it makes, I don't know, when it makes sense in my mind and my heart, I'm going to go after it. And even if it doesn't make sense in the mind at first, I'm like, well, let me just lean in a little bit. Let me just follow this clue a little bit, think about it, dream about it, pray about it, let me follow it a bit, and let me see what it turns into. And um, sometimes not much, but other times it's been incredible. Uh, like I, I remember when I had that vision, I was, I had a sense, I mean, I was doing good things, volunteering at the children's hospital or this or that, but I had stopped fighting for a year or at least it was 11 months. And so I was jobless for 11 months. I didn't have a paycheck and I was struggling. I was struggling. And I so wanted to hear something, to see something, to know something, to feel Like I was my life was going in the right direction. And so I would say that there was this deep sense of yearning. When I've told people I've I said a prayer, God, what are you gonna do with my life? I've heard someone say, That sounds too simple, too easy and I'm like, Well maybe maybe, but at the same time like I was hungry, uh, and thirsty and needed some sort of direction. And so there was this like yearning in my heart, in my soul. Um that I, I I needed to connect, I think, with God, or needed to connect with, with, with something, someone, and um, and I got an answer. <laughs> and whenever I, whenever it was that big and that real, and that vivid, and it's funny, I, I I say that you know I had to go, but I still debated it. Once Caleb told me, and then told me all the dangers and and how crazy it was. And well, that's when the mind kicks and, in, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah exactly and and the finance i'm like well how the heck am i gonna do this and uh uh, how am i gonna pay two thousand dollars for a plane ticket when i got like 30 bucks in my bank account um and caleb told someone who told someone who was a businessman and a farmer in his community and the farmer's like well i'll pay for him to go uh which is nuts right uh some uh man i just oh marvin uh decided to get my plane ticket then my next trip the guy knocked out in a fight um heard about the stuff that I was doing a Former opponent of mine who I knocked out said, I'll, I'll pay for your plane ticket. And I was like, Oh my gosh, nice. just the kind of, kindness of just the right people at the right time made it possible. We have 20 people in the Congo that are my heroes that are some of the most incredible people I've ever met in my entire life. And it's just such a privilege and an absolute pleasure to know them because these are the ones that were impoverished and were suffering the most. They're the ones I'm at the water for headquarters right now. And I'm looking out into the kind of the, I don't know the lobby or the, the little office and there's this TV and it's flashing pictures. And I just saw one of my favorite men in the world, Ben, his real name is Laringa, but the pygmies call him. Amagoo am And he's like my brother there. I was the best man in his wedding. and um, Amigu Amigu means the, we are one, we are not different. And he's from a tribe that actually oppresses, uh, the Pygmies and looks down upon them. But yet he stepped out of that and decided, I'm not going to be part of that anymore. I'm going to be part of the solution. And, and to see like the love he has for them inspires me to see him change his whole life around, uh, even to be looked down upon by his own family members. Uh, because he's going out and staying with the pygmies and loving, loving people who shouldn't be loved in their opinion. And yet, I don't know. He's just been such a inspiration to my life because he is, he's being part of the solution uh, to their own problems and even problems that even aren't his, Now the water crisis is, but you know, to see what he's doing for the pygmies is just so inspiring. He's denying himself comfort you know to go live in the forest like even people in in africa in congo in the least developed country on planet earth lease roads lease houses least uh, uh um schools and, and hospitals uh they they look down on the pygmies like how in the world would you ever go live in the forest in a twig leaf hut and sleep on the dirt and that's what they look at in and say, and we have 20 men that are just leading the charge, men and women that go out there, live exactly like the Pygmies do, so that they can live with them and listen to them and learn from them, so that collectively, together, they can brainstorm and come up with the best way to love them in the most practical way that will actually change things. And so we've just seen long-lasting change happen, 3,000 acres of land be given back to the Pygmies in their name that they will own from generation to generation, because we got it on the local, the state, and the national level. And most powerful documents uh, in Congo, and it's for the Pygmies for the first time in their history. And, uh, man, 62 water wells that these guys have have learned to drill and to drill for themselves. They've been able to start up sustainable businesses, start up farming projects. And these guys from Uganda came to teach us, like warring nations, and these guys from Waterfall that were trained by the office that I'm in right now, you know, they they drilled about 100 water wells for themselves in their country, and they came to teach us and risk their lives, and were almost killed. And man, I, I could go on story. After yeah, story, uh, that's, what
0: you guys guide me. that's what I love about the work that you're doing is that you're you know you're working with the communities to kind of help them so that they're trained and they're knowledgeable and they're gaining information on how to help themselves with you guys. So that's sustainable. It's not just dumping a bunch of money or, or, you know, food or what equipment and saying, you know, here you go. It's, you know, building it with the communities. Um, So you know, on that note, you know, let's talk about dig deeper because they're doing some amazing, you're working with them with Water4 doing some amazing things in Africa.
1: Yeah, well Dig Deeper is a campaign for our team in Uganda. So Water Four has forty-four well drilling teams. And so Fight for the Forgotten, my initiative or our initiative in Congo, um, is just one of those forty-four well drilling teams. But if I told you just real quick, like last year's stat before I jump into Dig Deeper, it's like last year these forty-four teams made up of four hundred Africans and sixteen African nations. Uh, who have all been empowered, right? So it's oh, that's what you were hitting on and I'm hitting on. But what I think is a tragedy is a lot of people think, I don't know, that the answer to poverty is charity. And it's like, if that's the mm. farthest thing from the truth. I'll just continue it or even cripple the people in those communities to be dependent on charity. Mm. And it's like opportunity is a solution to to poverty. And so I love how Waterfall is creating opportunities for the people on the ground, and so last year, there was four hundred peeps um, or people peeps <laughs> um, <laughs> in the in the forty four teams, they drilled six hundred and ninety water wells, and that served uh, one hundred and seventy two thousand people. Wow! So basically, we were able to put the solution in the hands of the people, the people that needed the most, the people that suffer the most. We're able to empower them, equip them, and so I love it. And these guys with the uh, the dig deeper campaign. They are from Uganda. Their name's the Young Men Drillers. And those are the guys, I said, that drilled 100 water wells in Uganda and then came to Congo to teach me. Well, the incredible thing about that is um, they were all impacted, and some could say their lives were almost ruined, by the LRA, the Lord's Resistance Army, uh, which was Joseph Kony. And he's one of the, yeah. I don't know, the worst rebel group leaders, uh, and really notorious, and did. Incredibly terrible things, and these guys like well Patrick, he was one of three survivors in his entire village. Uh, where B Tech um, was a child soldier for a little bit, and when he came to Congo, he would wake up in night terrors, uh, just screaming bloody murder in the middle of the night, and it freaked us out at first because we didn't know what was going on or why. But eventually, him staying three months with us in the forest. We just, you know, pat him on the back when he would wake up and start screaming and take him a little bit to get out of that nightmare and we'd just be there for him and say, hey, B-Tech, it's all right. We're here for you, bro, and be there for him. And so the Dig Deeper campaign is about B-Tech, Patrick, and Medi for me. What's their whole team? But they're going to now, we're drilling water wells in this this community called Lacho, and Lacho is a place where there's 5,000 people who don't have clean water. And we're going to go in and make sure that they all have clean water, at least in this one part of the show. And um, they're all getting water from this one spot. that's just terrible. And we're going to drill five wells there. And then we're starting up these, just going deeper, digging deeper. We're starting these vending kiosks or these water vending kiosks where the local community can go to. And instead of having to stick their water or their jerry cans in dirty water, or instead of having to pump the water, they're just going to have these kiosks that they stick underneath and they turn on the tap. But what we're going to do is it's going to cost about five cents per jerry can, but everywhere in the world you pay for water. Um, and so especially clean water. And so in Lacho, they're paying for dirty water. Um, mm-hmm. And so we're going to set up these vending kiosks. It's about five cents a jerry can, which is five gallons. Um, so 20 liters and five cents is going to go to further or fund more water wells in the community. So basically 5,000 people are going to get clean water and it's going to have five-inning kiosks and that's going to be about $10 per person. And so for $10 per person, it, it gets 5,000 people clean water. So I'm kind of going all over the place there, but I, I just love it, man. It's going to be awesome. And no, it's, it's the campaign's it's... website...
0: Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, please go ahead.
1: Oh, no, the campaign's website is water4.org slash dig deeper. And so basically it's all falling on uh, crowdfunding campaigns. And we're about 12, 12, or 13% of the way there. And we're going all the way through July, but we have this incredible donor that is doing a dollar for dollar match. And if we can hit our goal of raising $25,000 on the crowdfunding, then he's going to kick in $25,000 more. And that's going to give Lachow that those five in the kiosk.
0: That's incredible. Things just seem to be falling in place, and the work you guys are doing. I mean, some of the stats that you there's a video online, uh, people can see it. I'll, we'll give out where that can be found. But essentially, you know, we're talking about how you know women are spending a lot of their day going back and forth to these water wells in the past. Now you've got yeah. these wells set up in their village, saving time. Giving girls can now go to school, can educate themselves rather than spend most of their life getting water. Talk about the health you know um, the stat that's was staggering to me and that you you mentioned was about five thousand people die every day in Africa from uh waterborne illnesses um, yeah and,
1: and, um, and well that's that's worldwide but but yes it's um uh, the majority of the people that suffer from lack of clean water is is in Africa and uh it's two million children a year under the age of five years old die um, just because they don't have clean water. It's three million people total. So two thirds, two thirds of that is um, the most susceptible, which are the children under the age of five years old. And so, you know, those kiddos, they they all have names like Andybo or Babo, who I also held um, the day he passed away and and buried him. Or I don't know, Sengule and Captula, these these people that I I know personally um, that are no longer with us. And so, uh, it's really tough. Um, yeah. And and, yeah, like what you said, Oh, just the 400 there's uh, for just children, there's 443 million children under the age of, uh, or sorry that are school children, 443 million school days are lost a year, um, because they have to go collect clean water or they have to go collect water, not even clean water. So if we can give them water in their community and they don't have to go collect that water, The kid can go to school because uh, it's so close. The mom can go get it and they don't have to select a kid to go just on those water walks, which the average water walk is 3.75 miles. That's crazy. Um, I
2: I can't even understand how long that is given sort of always just, you know, a couple steps to the water. But I want to say real quickly, because I know you have to get going. Uh, You're doing a lot of, you know, I like to say you're eliminating the grief. Um, And so by providing clean water, you're actually prolonging someone's life so people don't have to grieve anymore. So you're doing actually grief work without even knowing it. And the people who donate are also doing a lot of grief work because they're helping people not hit the grief point so soon in someone's life. And you're saying the life becomes longer and their relationships with their their family become deeper because they have more time to educate themselves and to help each other. But before we we sort of get going, there's one question we always ask on the podcast, and it's, have you ever had a dream of someone who has died? And so Andy Bo, Andy Andy Bo. Yeah, have you ever had a dream of him since he's died? I wish. I wish I had. Not that I can remember. And so it's strange, you know, now...
1: I think in the last month or two, I've started to try to go to bed with an an intention of I want to remember my dreams tonight and waking up in the morning and kind of drifting for 15, 20 minutes as I wake and trying to remember my dreams and starting to get a, uh, I want to start a dream journal, but for now I'm just recording them. And, And it's really started to help me remember as I go to sleep with the intention as I wake up and drift and try to remember before I even get out of bed or open my eyes and be blasted by the light trying to remember. And I've started to really remember them a lot more because I know I had those four moments, but really uh, I never really remembered my dreams very much um, until lately, unless they were extremely vivid, like those, those three that I remembered. But yeah, I I really hope so. Uh, My mom has, my mom had a very detailed intimate dream about my grandmother who passed away. And so I know that was a tremendous gift to her that she just really holds on to and cherishes
2: wow that's beautiful And i think that's you know that's one reason why we do the podcast because a lot of people like there's no research out there first of all and a lot of people don't know how to ask the questions and so a lot of these dreams people have they sort of keep keep dear to them and they sort of and they feel isolated because no one's asking about them no one wants to hear them Um, and sometimes when you do share them people sort of dismiss them so that's why we always try to do in the podcast is ask about these dreams and so since you haven't had a dream um, what dream would you want to have if you could?
1: I'd want to have a dream of him just being being at peace. Just because I know how much he suffered uh, because of the waterborne illness. So if uh if I could have that dream it'd really be quite awesome. Or maybe Buddh Babo or Captula, Sangule, of them just being at rest and at peace or maybe even smiling down on our team who's who's doing all the work like I know I know I know him, I love them but uh but our well drillers are the true heroes to me uh,
0: if now one last time Justin um, we're out of time here and we really appreciate you being on our podcast if you could uh, let our listeners know where they can get involved with uh, what you're doing
1: yeah so they could go to fightfortheforgotten.org um, and that's the website for the initiative but but really to get involved and to help us dig deeper and um, uh, it would be water4.org slash dig deeper. And you would be empowering three of the most amazing men that I know walking the face of the earth. Um, and it would be an incredible help to transform the lives of, of Lecho and 5,000 people getting clean water. Um, like what you said, helping with that grief and the dream of of having clean water. Cause it's such a luxury and something that a lot of these parents could have been. I think dreaming about that they could one day have clean water for their kids and alleviate the, uh, the water more disease they face.
0: Excellent. Um, so, yeah, to our listeners, please check out Justin Wren. Uh, Google him. Check out his story. Watch his videos. Listen to other podcasts he's been on, and you will really get a sense of the amazing stuff this this man's doing. You got a big heart, Justin and you know, you I, I love the way that your path and journey has turned out, and it's going to get better. And we're going to watch every fight, <laughs> and we're going to we're going to see you succeed and and do it for your family and everybody who who's who's been a part of your life. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so please check out our platform at GriefDreams.ca for more information on the topic. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at grief dreams uh, this podcast can be found on itunes podbean stitcher overcast and also iHeartRadio, radio uh, which we just added recently if you're interested in being a guest on our podcast please email us your story and what you would like to share at grief dreams podcast at gmail.com so with love and gratitude from us to you
1: A new beginning.